And just totally out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, will you hold the line for Justice Marshall? And so then this deep, booming voice on the phone comes on and says, you still looking for a job for next year? And I stumbled out something like, yes, sir, I am. Well, you got one. You want it? (laughs) And I said, well, I'd be flattered, of of, of course. All right, good. I'll send you a letter. Click. That was the entire phone conversation. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Richard Pildes, is a very timely one. He is professor of constitutional law at NYU Law School and a leading scholar and practitioner in legal issues concerning democracy. He is co-author of a casebook called The Law of Democracy, which helped create a new field of study in the law schools, and also writes publicly at places like the Washington Post and New York Times. As a lawyer, he's argued voting rights and election law cases before the United States Supreme Court and the Courts of Appeal. We had much to talk about, including his path to his current position, which went through clerkships with Abner Mikva and Thurgood Marshall, as well as about our current crisis of democracy with Trump. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Richard Pildes at NYU Law. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is uh, Richard Pildes. I'm the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU Law School. I don't know how far back in my biography you want to go. I always ask people about like where they grew up. And I know that you, for instance, were a chem major. And I'm curious about how you you went from that to law. So yeah, if you can go back to what your family was like, I'd love that. Okay, so uh, it's fun to have an opportunity to talk about that. Uh, So one interesting quirk to my family biography, my mother uh, was actually born in Argentina. She was from a Russian Jewish family that uh, had to flee. And when they left Russia, uh, they could not get into the United States. They were on a boat. The boat basically, as I understand it, kind of bounced down the coast Uh, until they found a major port that would take them in, which was Buenos Aires. So my mother was born there, lived till she was 11, uh, and then they came up to the States and to Chicago. I tell the story because when she came to Chicago, she only spoke Spanish. Back in those days, they didn't have bilingual education in the schools. So when she was 11, they put her in first grade because they tested you for competence. And of course, since she didn't speak English, she didn't do very well and talks about the embarrassment of being an 11-year-old sitting in first-grade desks. But she uh, 
picked up English very quickly. And by the end of the year, when they tested again, she not only went into her age-appropriate grade, but they actually skipped her ahead of grade. Um, she became a um, one of the founders of the field of neonatology and medicine, which is a subspecialty of pediatrics that deals with infants that are born with serious problems of one sort or another, um, and was the chairman of the Department of Neonatology at the main public hospital in Chicago, Cook County Hospital, for for many, many years. My father was also a doctor. He was an OBGYN. But anyway, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and I'm, I was glad you asked me about this because I, I love Chicago. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal city. I think it's vastly underappreciated on the coasts, uh, including in New York. My folks are still alive. They're in their 90s. I have one sister. She's also in Chicago. So I go back there often. You can probably hear the Midwestern in my uh, accent. Were, were they political as doctors? You know, that's interesting. They were always highly engaged with the world, including politics. Uh, we traveled a lot uh, when they had enough money that we could afford to do that. They were, they were you know, curious about the world. They were curious about politics. They're very, still very actively invested in politics, but they don't do, they don't engage in political sort of activism of any sort, but they are avid consumers of news, including political information. So you went off to Princeton? Yes. Was that chemistry that you did there, was, were you thinking pre-med or what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking pre-med. I was always very attracted to the sciences and math, and I liked the the sense that there were right answers, that it required kind of good, deep, analytic approaches to the material. I thought a lot of the political science type courses were sort of fuzzy and amorphous. I always had a very strong humanities orientation. I mean, I, I loved English literature. I took lots of courses in, in the humanities. I came out of high school with a very strong science and math background, and when I was doing chemistry, it was really what we call quantum chemistry, uh, which is sort of not wet chemistry, putting things together and test tubes and all of that, which I never did like all that much, but it's really the intersection of sort of physics, math, and chemistry. I did wrestle with whether I was going to go to graduate school in chemistry. I actually took the GREs in chemistry or whether I was going to go to law school. Um, I think the thing that tipped me over toward law school is that I I worked in my last year or two at, at Princeton with um, graduate students in chemistry. And I, I got a kind of a good exposure to what that life was like. My image of it was that you spent seven or eight years in a dungy basement somewhere wrestling with equipment, trying to get equipment to work. And if you were lucky, you got six months of data wrote up a dissertation, and um, uh, that didn't seem too appealing to me. So, uh, And the other thing was that I, I began to feel I wanted to do things that uh, were more social, had more of a, of, of, of a public policy kind of impact. I did feel naively at the time that, you know, in medicine, you were helping people one by one, but in law and policy, you could help people on a much broader scale. I think that's a silly view. I think that was part of the thought process uh, at the time. So if you're going to go to a law school, Harvard Law is okay, and <laughs> uh, editor of Law Review and the Supreme Court part of it, right? I loved my time at Harvard Law School. Uh, it was a big adjustment for me, I have to say. Coming out of a science background, I was almost intimidated, I would say, by by some of the other students in the first semester. They, they were so much more 
knowledgeable about the sort of moral, philosophical, political, theoretical, whatever kinds of questions that are beneath the surface in first-year law. They were far more articulate than I was. And so the transition was um, not straightforward, but I settled in you know, pretty well. I, I loved it. I loved being on the law review there, which was one of the best intellectual experiences I've ever had. Um, incredibly talented group of people. I thought I might go into environmental law because it, it was at the intersection of sort of my science background and my legal interests. I was interested in environmental issues. Some of the chemistry I'd been doing had been sort of environmental chemistry, which deals with pollution. And so in my first summer, after the first year of law school, I did work at, at a great environmental group called the Natural Resources Defense Organization. But that interest, you know, kind of gradually waned. And I guess I was attracted to some of the same more theoretical questions or theoretical mindset, I suppose, that, uh, you know, had made me interested in quantum chemistry. And as I pursued law, um, I guess I was attracted, again, to sort of more, I don't know, abstract, theoretical kinds of questions. And, and that's part of why I ultimately became an academic in law. Although one of the great things about being a law professor is you uh, can be engaged in, in litigation and public policy and government. Anyway, that's probably jumping a little bit too far ahead of the story because I, I see you like to unravel the background kind of step by step, which is a very nice way to do it. I'm just always so curious about people's careers and how, you know, the decisions that you take that land you in a place that's so interesting. You know, my older daughter's 18. She's a freshman in college. I think about, you know, the decisions that she has to make about what to major in and what to do for jobs and how that leads, one thing leads to another, you know, in, in creating a life. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I have to say I'm sort of fascinated by that too. And, and I think that one of the things you learn is... um there's a lot of serendipity. Um, you can't predict things. You know, you just take what seems interesting um, and fulfilling at the moment. And if you do a good job with it, it often leads to opportunities you wouldn't have thought existed or might not have been interesting to you earlier on, become more interesting. My mother, for example, let's go back to that story. You know, when my mother was 12, she knew she wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I find that just unfathomable. Yeah, I, I never knew either. I read the book 1L, you're probably aware of, about Harvard Law. I was a little earlier than you were there, maybe a decade. Um, and I know they reformed it some, but it's the intensity there seemed rough. Yeah, so I, I would say by the time I was there, it was not like the image portrayed in 1L. I think it depends somewhat on which professors you happen to have. I know there were some people when I was there who did still teach in the way that 1L describes, but uh, that really wasn't my experience there. It was incredibly intense intellectually. One of the things I liked about it was that I felt I had kind of found my natural environment, you know, even more so than when I was in college. Lots of intense, very, very smart people, great professors, great issues, uh, but it was not uh, mean and vicious or belittling or humiliating uh, in the way that 1L portrayed the law school earlier on. When you were, you sort of described a transition where you felt less articulate uh, than some of the people maybe who came from different backgrounds. Did you feel self-doubt at all? Or did you know, hey, I'm, I'm smart. I, I can handle this. No, I, I think in that first semester, 
I found my way to a group of, of people I worked with, uh, you know, kind of like a study group who were incredibly talented people. I didn't know how talented they were compared to everybody else at Harvard Law School at the time, uh, but they turned out to have been an exceptionally talented group. And I think I was not at all sure where I stood uh, during my first semester there. I think there was plenty of, you know, uncertainty or self-doubt. I, I, I remember one uh, student in my section, a, a woman, who didn't take any notes and would just stare intensely Jesus. the entire time <laughs> yeah. at the professor. And, and uh, you know, I remember she said she found taking notes distracting. And I thought, geez, you know, it, it, she's just absorbing all of this. She went on to become a law professor, too, by the way, I should say. Probably was absorbing it. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, one of, one of the things I liked about Harvard Law School, to be honest, um, is that it was a place, you know, particularly back then, which still had a very, you know, kind of serious, rigorous grading system. It was all, of course, blind grading. Unlike Yale Law School, I will say, by contrast, at the end of that first, first semester, I found out I had done, you know, very well. And so I think that was the moment at which I, I realized, okay, you know, I'm going to be fine here. But it wasn't until that moment that I had that sense. I know that you clerked for two giants in the judicial world. I must tell you, this is great because it's conjuring up all these memories that I, you know, I haven't thought about for a long, long time. But I have a funny story about the first person I clerked with, uh, which has some connection to current events. So I clerked for Judge Abner Mikva on the D.C. Circuit my first year uh, as a law clerk. Uh, Judge Mikva... I uh, had an incredibly distinguished career, in fact, uh, an exceptionally uh, broad career. He served in the Illinois legislature, so he was a state legislator. Then he served in the U.S. Congress uh, for a number of years. He was actually, uh, for part of that time, a member of Congress from the district that we lived in. He became a federal judge on the D.C. Circuit, so at the you know, very high level of the judicial branch after serving in Congress and the state legislature. And then he became White House counsel to President Clinton for a period of time. And so he served at the highest levels of the executive, judicial, and legislative branches in the United States. I mean, it's really an extraordinary story. He also was a Midwesterner. He grew up in Milwaukee. But in any event, the, the funny story is I was um, interviewing for a summer position my second year after law school at a law firm, big law firm, well-known firm in Washington, Arnold and Porter. Uh, and I interviewed with a guy named Merrick Garland, who was a lawyer at the firm at the time. Definitely in the news now. Yep. <laughs> so Merrick was also a Midwesterner. Um, he's from the Chicago area. But in any event, Merrick um, asked me, you know, what I thought I wanted to do after law school. And I said I thought I wanted to be a law clerk first. And he asked me if I had any thoughts about um, who I might most want to clerk for, ideally. And I said, Judge Mikva. And unbeknownst to me, Merrick was actually very close to Judge Mikva. And he wrote, and I, I know this because when I ended up clerking for Judge Mikva, he showed me this. So right after our law firm interview ended, he wrote a short handwritten note to Judge Mikva and said, I, you know, I just interviewed this guy and I think he's, you know, great, blah, blah, blah. And he spontaneously said, you know, when I asked who he wanted to clerk for, that he wanted to clerk for you. 
So, you know, it's funny how these kind of things come full circle or whatever. But uh, Merrick was, uh, you know, and, and then when I went to the firm in the summer, I worked for Merrick on legal, uh, basically antitrust issues. What did you think of him? Oh, I loved him. I, I thought Merrick was uh, both a brilliant lawyer, unbelievably sweet person, smart, uh, supportive. Think he'll make a good attorney general? Exactly what you want from somebody when you're yeah. that age of things. Yeah, he's well, he's had an up and down last few years. Yeah, again, it's extraordinary how life comes in full circle in some ways or, you know, the serendipity of things. And, and you know, we're at a moment where the attorney general of the United States is, is probably the most important cabinet appointment that uh, President-elect Biden will make. Um, there are obviously huge issues um, that are going to have to be decided in the Justice Department. I think Merrick Garland uh, would bring the highest level of professionalism, integrity, um, good judgment, a legal understanding to that role. Uh, he's a real, you know, he's an institutionalist. He believes in the institutions of the United States. I, I assume he will be confirmed. I think it's terrific. I was very excited and pleased for the country that the president-elect chose him. What was clerking for McFaul like then? Well, that was that was kind of uh, interesting. <laughs> and what, I, I, I think I will tell you this story. I'm sort of debating with myself, you know, uh, how how frank to be about it. But um, so you know, I mean, he was a wonderful human being. Loved him also. Um, just such a warm, decent, ethical person. He was a kind of a reform Democrat from Chicago back in the days of the of the Mayor Daley machine, Democratic Party in Chicago. He was a reformist. Uh, Mayor Daley hated him. Um, he hated him so much that that the Daily Machine worked with the Illinois legislature to redistrict uh, Abner Mikva out of the district he had been elected to initially, which was in the Hyde Park area, includes the University of Chicago. And Mikva had to move up to the North Shore of Chicago after that in order to try to find a district in which he could still get elected which he successfully did, um, although he had very tight races and didn't win all of them. But the funny thing that I was laughing about when you asked the question is that one of the early assignments Judge McVeigh gave me was to write a speech for him about the death penalty. And, and I was kind of shocked that he wanted me to help him write a speech. You know, I thought we'd just work on cases and legal opinions. And I had no idea how to write a speech. And so he gave me just a few general thoughts. I wrote this speech. Uh, you know, I hated really doing it, I have to say. I just felt out of my depth. And he came back and he told me supposedly how wonderful the whole thing had gone. And then I was very concerned he was going to ask me to do this regularly. <laughs> but, but as I say, I think he kind of understood it, it, was not, it was not something I felt comfortable with. It wasn't my natural sort of style. As I recall, I don't think he asked me after that. But the thing I, the other story I just thought about to give you a feel for Judge Mikva, which again, I, this is something I probably haven't thought about in 15 years or something now. One of the very first things I was involved in was a case that he had written the opinion for, for a three judge panel. That's how they normally decide cases three judges in a panel. Um, but as you might know, every once in a while, if the majority of the court, the full court, uh, disagrees or has questions about a panel opinion, they will vote to take the case, what's called en banc, and rehear it with the entire court, the entire 
United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. All courts have this procedure, all, all federal courts. The Anbach Quirk was going to review this opinion of his, which was a, on constitutional law issues. You know, that was a pretty strong signal that they were probably going to come out differently than uh, the panel opinion. And when I got there and I worked on this case, I, I actually came to the view that his panel opinion wasn't right. Wow. Uh, and so I, I went to him to try to, you know, talk about this with him. Uh, and, you know, that was, again, being young and naive and having this view that, of course, you know, you want to get the law right and you want to understand the the principles fully and all their consequences and all that. And Judge Mikva did respond in that way. Um, and he was completely open. We had very good discussions about it. Um, he did kind of come around to to the view that we discussed. Um, and uh, when the Anmak court decided the case, he wrote a separate opinion, which, you know, didn't run away completely from his prior opinion, but but did kind of pull back significantly. I didn't realize at the time how extraordinary it was that a judge would be that open to a new, fresh-faced law clerk, you know, one month into the job, uh, coming to him and saying, look, I think, I think maybe this does need to be rethought some. Actually, one of the lessons he taught me <laughs> and thought about this connection was that um, he used to describe when he was in Congress at the very beginning, um, he managed to do certain things that he managed to do only because he didn't realize you weren't supposed to do them. And he often described that as one of the benefits of, of having new law clerks every year. And I think that was an example. I mean, I didn't know better probably down the road, maybe I would have been much more cautious uh, about going to a judge and asking him to rethink something he had committed to in print in a published decision. Uh, but he was wonderful, uh, open-minded, reacted in, every, in exactly the way you would hope um, a judge would react, not defensive, wanting to understand my arguments, wanting to think things through with an open mind. It was great. I, I have nothing but uh, great respect and affection for him. That's a widely shared view uh, about about Abner Mikva. He uh, he's one of these people who managed to come through a political career in Congress and the state legislature with his reputation, ethical stance, uh, and the like, very very uh, intact, even among people who you know disagree with him about policy. It's amazing how much has been accomplished by people who didn't know you couldn't do exactly what <laughs> something or other. In, in entrepreneurship, it's true too. Thurgood Marshall. Uh, tell me about that clerkship. Yeah, so I, I don't even know where to start uh, talking about Justice Marshall. Obviously, he's one of the most consequential, uh, greatest legal figures in America uh, of the 20th century. I'm not sure how much people now realize what incredible personal courage, among everything else, he had to show during his life. You know, back when he was uh, representing black criminal defendants in the South in the 1930s, for example, and, you know, he would be told, basically, if you're in town after after sundown, you know, things aren't going to be good for you. Just uh, un unbelievable life, uh, unbelievable commitment. One of the things about Justice Marshall is he strongly believed that the way to make change was through the system. You know, he believed in the system. He believed in our institutions. He believed in using the courts to pursue the social change that the country needed. Uh, of course, he had tremendous uh, success, um, but he was patient. Back then, you know, uh, people had more of a sense of 
the need to build things incrementally to get where you wanted to get. So this is well known, but you know when he was in the legal NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which he was the director for a long time, was challenging school segregation. He didn't go after Plessy versus Ferguson in one fell swoop, asked the Supreme Court to get rid of uh, basically racial apartheid in parts of the country in one fell swoop. He didn't think the court would do that. He thought it would set the cause back to ask the court to do that. Uh, Instead, what he did is brick by brick, they brought individual cases where they thought they would receive the most sympathetic hearing um, to build a body of law from which they could then launch off to the next stage and the next stage culminating in uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. But anyway, I mean, that's all well known. I guess what might be less well known to, to people about Justice Marshall is he was an incredibly large man. <laughs> so my first impression of him was, first in-person impression, I'll tell you about my first phone call with him, but my first in-person impression of him is when I shook his hand, I felt like my hand was just disappearing in his hand. It was just so much bigger than mine. I think he might have been six four, but he was he was just a large, large man, especially at that point. He was incredibly irreverent. He had a, a fantastic sense of humor, even laughing at himself in various ways. The first time I actually had any contact with him, um, and many law clerks would tell you of a similar experience, was that you know I had applied uh, to be a law clerk to him. I had applied to the other justices on the court. Some of them had interview committees you would interview with. Some of them would interview you in person. I was in Judge Mikva's chambers uh, and just totally out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, will you hold the line for Justice Marshall? And so I said something like, you know, stammered something like, uh, uh, yes. And so then this, this deep, booming voice on the phone comes on and says, you still looking for a job for next year? That's literally the first thing he said. And I, I'm like, you know, sort of flabbergasted by the whole thing. And I stumbled out something like, oh, y- 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 yes, sir. Y- y- yes, sir, I am. Well, you got one. You want it? Wow. <laughs> and I said, well, I- I'd be flattered. Uh, I'd be flattered, of-, of-, of course. All right, good. I'll send you a letter. Click. Wow. Efficient. <laughs> <laughs> that was the entire phone conversation. Yeah. And and then I showed up, whatever, I forgot how many months, you know, three, four months later or something like that. And then the next thing I remember is that handshake and, and the, the greeting saying hello. So that's part of my, my Justice Marshall story to give you a little bit more of a, a richer picture uh, of him as a, as a person. What was he like as a supervisor? You know, the way we would do things is the clerks would divide the cases up. Back then, the, the Supreme Court heard vastly more cases than it hears today. I don't remember the exact number, but the term I was I was there, I think, was 165, 170 cases. Today, it's more like 70 cases. We were incredibly overwhelmed. The clerks divided the cases up. Uh, there were four of us. We would write memos to him about the cases before they were being argued. We would sit down with him uh, after the case had been argued, but before he was meeting with the other justices to uh, cast his vote. Uh, and he w- we would have these great you know discussions about the cases um, and the issues. Uh, <laughs> if you push too hard in a certain direction um, that he wasn't buying, um, at some point he he might say something to you like, 
Go over and look at that commission on the wall. That's the commission from the president uh, and the Senate. Uh, <laughs> you see your name on that commission? <laughs> so that's when you that's when you knew you 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 got as far as you better go. He was the justice before yeah. it got yeah before <laughs> before it got worse. <laughs> You know, he was famous for because he had been a trial lawyer uh, as well as an appellate lawyer. Uh, he he was well known for sometimes, depending on the nature of the case, um, insisting that you go get the the actual like trial record of a, typically a criminal case, um, and he would want to look at the actual transcript of the trial. He was respected by other members of the court, other justices, for his trial experience. I think he might have been the only one on the court at that time who actually had trial experience. So that was always kind of very interesting and a lot to learn from him, you know, about uh, sort of penetrating the cold record of a case and actually getting a sense of, you know, what had really been going on beneath the sort of appellate record or appellate briefing that you would see. He, he was a, a, a character in lots of ways, which is great. I mean, like I said, he was uh, funny, irreverent, down to earth, playful, had a twinkle in his eye a lot of the time. Sounds like a, kind of an amazing experience well, for him. Of course it was amazing. I mean, yeah. th this, is, this is also well known about him, but he's, he is still the best storyteller I've ever known. And I think a lot of people would say that. He could tell stories for hours, literally hours at a time. And I think over the course of the years, many stories as he told us, I, I don't think he ever repeated a story. And the thing about his stories is that they intersected with so much of American history over the 20th century, whether it was, you know, race issues, union issues, uh, presidents, you know, surprising things like uh, uh, Southern segregation as uh, governors that he would uh, end up sitting around drinking bourbon with uh, in some context in which they were basically saying, look, I want the courts to order me to do this. I can't do it. You can find other people who have said this in public settings as well. But he was such a good storyteller that at the start of the term, what would happen is he would often come down and plop down in this big leather armchair that was in the area where the clerks were working, where we were working on opinions and the like. And when he got going, he could tell stories for three, four hours nonstop. After a certain point when the workload was crushing, as much as you wanted to hear these stories – you know, you were like, oh, my God, I'm going to be up here until three in the morning anyway. The clerks would start piling up law books on that chair to discourage him from sitting there. So he would still tell the stories, but he'd have to be standing up in the doorway. Uh, and, and that put a little constraint on it. I mean, one of the things I thought at the time and I regretted afterward, we just I just didn't have the time. But um, and frankly, we didn't have smartphones and things like that back then. But uh you know, I wish I had gone home and, and recorded my memories of the stories or, or written them down. It's just a, such a shame. We uh, Law clerks wanted him for years to do an oral history. He never wanted to do it. Uh, I remember uh, him saying, uh, if I did it, I'd have to tell the truth. If I told the truth, I'd hurt too many people. And so we could never get him to do that, uh, which is which is such a shame. Uh, I do happen to know, by the way, that what, what I expect to be uh, a major biography of him is now being done by uh, actually a former Princeton graduate also named A. Scott Berg, who's, he may have won a Pulitzer. He's doing a biography of Justice Marshall now. He interviewed me. This was actually probably a year ago. So 
I assume he's pretty far along with the book. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to that biography. I think it will be the fullest biography of Justice Marshall that's been published uh, when it comes out. And he's a great writer, so hopefully it'll be a good read. How does being able to work closely with two kind of larger-than-life figures like that, how does that affect how you set your own sights? I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that question. I think I was going to be an academic in law. That was just sort of, in a way, my destiny. Um, I don't know that those two wonderful years, you know, put me on that course, that I wouldn't have been on that course otherwise. I think I gained much more respect and interest in politics and in government, but I still was fundamentally an academic type. I mean, I'll tell you, um, you know, a comparison. This is, I don't mean this in any flattering way because it's not. Someone who also clerked for Judge Mikva and Justice Marshall and went to Harvard Law School and was a few years behind me was Elena Kagan. And she always had more of an interest in government than, than I did, at least at that time when we were at that age. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know her uh, when she was going through these experiences, I knew her a few years after. But uh, when when Judge Mikva accepted uh, President Clinton's offer to become his White House counsel, Elena Kagan got in touch with Judge Mikva and said she'd be very interested in working for him in the White House. She did do that. She worked uh, for two years with him and then stayed a third year in the White House on policy issues. Um, and that's when she became particularly uh, known to uh, uh, sort of prominent, you know, people in the sort of Washington kind of Democratic Party sort of establishment, if you will, um, because I think she had a much stronger interest than I did at that time in government. I didn't um, uh, get in touch with Judge McFa, uh to to ask him about that. I was much more interested in in being an academic. These are some of the most amazing experiences in my life working for both of them. But it's really hard to say, you know, how that changed me. I sort of feel like I was who I was by that point, and I just treasure uh, the the honor and the opportunity to have worked for them. How would you characterize your academic career? So I started teaching at the University of Michigan Law School. I actually, when I finished clerking at the Supreme Court for Justice Marshall, I practiced law in Boston for a couple of years because even though I knew I wanted to be an academic, I, I felt that... Um, uh, I wanted to have actually experienced practicing law before I started teaching students. And so I did that for a couple of years in Boston. And then I, I started my teaching career at the University of Michigan Law School. Early on, I was very interested in interdisciplinary approaches to law. Um, I met um, some incredibly talented academics at the University of Michigan who were not in law. And I became drawn to their work, their interests. I learned a huge amount from them. The point I wanted to make is that I, I, I was, I would say, very theoretical in my interest early on uh, in my academic uh, career. After seven, eight years, I, I sort of discovered these legal issues concerning democratic processes, democratic institutions as the ones I really wanted to focus in on. From today's vantage point, it might seem obvious these are huge issues. But actually, at the time, there weren't courses in the law schools taught on these issues. Um, it wasn't really a field of study in the law schools. I certainly didn't have any course on these issues when I was um, a law student at Harvard Law School. I had always been interested in democratic theory, 
but I kind of stumbled on the sort of practical aspects of, of democratic theory, if you will, partly through my connection to um, other academics at other law schools um, who had actually practiced in this area before becoming legal academics. So I'll, I'll mention uh, my two fantastic compatriots, if you will. One is uh, Sam Zakharoff, who at that time uh, was a law professor at the University of Texas Law School, Pam Carlin, who at that time was a professor at the University of Virginia Law School. Um, Sam is now a colleague of mine at NYU. Pam's now a professor at Stanford. But because of the connections to them and to some political scientists who were doing great work at the intersection of sort of law and political science, I got very, very interested in Voting Rights Act issues, redistricting kinds of issues, and began to really make that my focal point. And uh, Sam and Pam and I ended up uh, putting together the first major casebook on these issues. We call it The Law of Democracy. I think that was published around 97, 98. We're in the something like the fifth edition now, about to do a sixth. We've added Nate personally, uh, so we now have four, four authors on the book. Uh, and, and that was just a great experience, trying to pull this together as a field. And one of the interesting things is over 30-some years now of working on these issues, um, you know, the focal point of democracy issues in American law has changed a lot over different periods of time. And so back when I first started working on these issues, as I said, the primary focal point was uh, Voting Rights Act issues, issues of race and redistricting, issues of race and politics. And that's really where I began. Then the shift started moving to campaign finance becoming a really big, important issue um, that got back on the stage in the late 1990s, you know, kind of culminating with an enactment of the McCain-Feingold law in the early 2000s, first major campaign finance laws since the, the 19, early 1970s. That, so that became a focal point for a while. Then with the Florida 2000 election, the Bush v. Gore dispute and all of the litigation around that and ultimately the resolution of the presidential election, uh, all these issues of election administration uh, became major, major issues. It's kind of you know constantly changing. I mean, all, all the prior issues are still there. Um, it's just that you know, the, the intensity and the energy and, you know, what's of public moment shifts from time to time. Now, once again, you know, we're very wrapped up in issues about election administration, election policy, the role of the courts in overseeing the election process. Um, how do we secure that process? Uh, how do we deal with some of the concerns that have, you know, been exposed in this election cycle uh, about the process? So, it's been fantastic for me uh, to have kind of discovered those issues as, as the things I really wanted to think about and to have found such wonderful people to do, uh, to work with on these issues. How did you get into the practice of law in some of these areas? Oh, well, that's a, that's a hard thing to uh, untangle uh, in my memory. Uh, as I got less theoretical and more tied to what was going on in the courts, I was doing academic writing that was um, cited a lot by the courts, and so that led to uh, uh, various actors wanting to get in touch to ask for advice about cases, to ask me to take over cases if I was interested when they reached higher levels in the system, to argue cases. I think that it was 
uh, probably just, I don't know, becoming known through the academic work, becoming known through the court citing the work that some of these individuals or groups, organizations kind of came to me to ask me to take on the role as counsel in these cases, which I love doing. I love arguing cases. Um, I love briefing cases. One of the things I really value, I kind of hinted at this earlier in our conversation, but um, when you're a professor in an area like, you know, history or some of the humanities, political science, you know, that's basically what you do as your career. Um, And you don't have as many opportunities to kind of wear a bunch of different hats. When you're a law professor, if you're interested, you can be involved in things at the courts, in the courts if you want to. Um, if you want to be involved in policymaking, um, you can contribute to that. I've worked very closely over the years with Bob Bauer, who uh, was one of the leading election lawyers, Robert Bauer, I should say. He was the general counsel for both of Barack Obama's presidential campaigns and then became White House counsel uh, for something like a year and a half to President Obama. Um, and uh, he would sometimes bring me in to, you know, provide analysis of certain legal issues. So you have a chance, you know, to work with government. And so you can go back and forth. Uh, and I think that makes for, a, you know, particularly fulfilling life uh, uh, as an academic in law. And I've, I've found these other experiences, you know, very rewarding, very satisfying Um and so I still try to do a little bit of all of them, a little bit of on the academic side, the litigation side, the policy advising side. Um, and a lot of it just depends on, you know, fortuities, who seeks you out and the like. So just to illustrate this, could you talk about like, I know that one of the cases you were involved in was Alabama Legislative Black Caucus. Can you talk about that, how that went down and sort of what you think the implications are? Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit more backdrop to that, too, because it kind of uh, goes to your question about, you know, how I got involved in certain things. So and this is, a you know, another one of these fortuitous stories. So uh, back when I was um, still at the University of Michigan, I became aware that in Alabama, as a result of settlements of Voting Rights Act litigation, a number of local governments had started using what's called cumulative voting to elect boards of education and county commissions. Uh, And I was very interested in this as an alternative voting system. In cumulative voting, if there are, for example, five seats to fill, every voter gets five votes. You can plump them all on one candidate. You can vote for five candidates, one vote each. You can distribute them however you want. And I was very curious to learn how this was working on the ground. So I went with a student for like 10 days down to a place called Chilton County in central Alabama, which is one of the places that have the system. And we met with and interviewed a lot of uh, people connected to the litigation and to the system, including the first African-Americans who had been elected to uh, county commissions as a result of this system being implemented. And I got involved or I got connected to an organization down there in Alabama called the Alabama Democratic Conference, which was a a sort of unusual group because it was formed in the, I think, early 1960s before the Voting Rights Act was enacted, when there was still massive uh, disenfranchisement of black voters in a place like Alabama and other places in the South uh, to promote minority voting rights. And so because it was so venerable, uh, it had been around for so long, it, it, it had become uh, really the dominant 
political organization for minority voting rights in Alabama. And so that was in the, in the mid-1990s. This case you're talking about, uh, I represented the Alabama Democratic Conference, believe it or not. You know, how many years later is that? Almost 20 years later in the Supreme Court challenging uh, the way the state legislature had designed election districts and, the, in our view, and successfully, um, as the courts concluded ultimately, using race in unconstitutional ways to design election districts. A strange story in a way that uh, these things that, um, you know, have no connection to each other and somehow 20 years later they become connected. Anyway, to talk about the importance of the case or why it was, you know, significant, uh, in the 2010 redistricting, uh, which of course is the last one we've had until the new census numbers come out, we'll do it again after 2021 now, in a lot of Southern states, the legislatures took the position that the Voting Rights Act required them to uh, put black populations up at fairly high levels in election districts in order not to violate the act. Our view, my client's view and my view, uh, was that this was not necessary under the Voting Rights Act. Um, and as a result, it was not uh, good for minority voters because by over-concentrating minority voters into districts, instead of spreading them out over more districts, a lot of their votes were wasted because candidates would win with 85%, 90% of the vote. But that meant in surrounding districts, um, there were very few black voters um, and therefore less influence in those surrounding districts for minority voters. And that this was using race in a way that the Voting Rights Act did not require. And indeed, therefore, we argued it was unconstitutional to use race in this way. We prevailed in a five to four Supreme Court decision. We went back to the federal court in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and argued the case on remand. And, and the court agreed with us and struck down, I don't know, 30 some state legislative districts in Alabama as unconstitutional. And that decision then uh, became the basis for uh, the Supreme Court and lower federal courts to strike down as unconstitutional uh, the districting that was done in a number of southern states, uh, you know, on the basis that these states had used race in a way they argued the Voting Rights Act required. That was an incorrect understanding of the Voting Rights Act. And as a result, they were using race in excessive and unjustified ways, uh, which made that unconstitutional. I think it's fair to say that was that was one of the two major issues in this round of redistricting uh, in the 2010 cycle, uh, the other being partisan gerrymandering. Actually, I was also part of the legal team in the case that went to the Supreme Court, which we lost five to four, um, arguing that partisan gerrymandering should be unconstitutional. That was a case out of uh, North Carolina, uh, where I was part of the team representing Common Cause, uh, challenging partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina. But in any event, partisan gerrymandering and the excessive use of race in drawing districts were, the, I think, the two dominant issues constitutionally over the 2010 round of redistricting. Uh, we'll see what the dominant issues are after the new round of redistricting takes place. You know, I can certainly foretell one issue that might be important, um, depending on what happens um, in the states when they get around to, to drawing districts. But I don't know. I hope that's not too long an explanation. We could fruitfully talk about it a lot longer. I want to ask you about something that is 
you know, definitely requires more time to talk about, but I can't not, which is, and I don't even know how to ask the question, but we've had a president for four years who has tested our system in ways that are different than anything beforehand. How has your expertise and what you've done during that time been affected? What have you been trying to do? Talk about sort of the intersection of what you do and and what has been going on there. Yeah, it's tough to fully reflect on those questions at the particular moment um, that we're speaking, of course, uh, because this is the day after the counting of the votes uh, in the Congress was disrupted for several hours by uh, a mob uh, that took over the Capitol. I was sickened. I was shocked. I was horrified. I was not entirely surprised, but it was, it was um, a matter of great despair. I'm still very shaken. Just to step back from this particular moment to the larger uh, question you were asking, I think there's no question that I became more aware of the fragility of our institutions as much as I study things about these institutions, I think I probably took for granted a lot of things uh, about how the country functioned. I would say I was not as aware as I should have been about how much ultimately a lot of these institutions depend uh, on I the individual personalities and the people who are in the critical roles and also how much the functioning of our institutions inevitably depends on sort of acceptance of fundamental principles of governance. I, people often talk about norms. I actually tend not to like that word because these aren't really matters of sort of etiquette. Uh, you know, a lot of these are matters of sort of fundamental principle, fundamental commitments of democratic self-governance in the United States. Um, and also, you know, this sort of weird mix of feeling uh, both uh, how easy and quickly uh, some of those understandings can come unraveled, and yet at the same time, the resiliency of the institutions. It's inevitable, no matter how much you try to legislate things through law, constitutions or statutes, um, you can't write all of the rules to imagine every possible situation that the political institutions of the country will face. I do think it's just inevitable that we, we are dependent to some extent, uh, both on the commitment of the people who occupy these roles to these principles of self-government and issues like the separation of powers, uh, the, the independence of law enforcement from partisan political considerations, and also uh, uh, not just personality, but as I say, these softer kinds of principles I think that's especially true with the presidency. It's very hard uh, to fully regulate the presidency through law. The president is inevitably going to have substantial discretion. There's more that can be done to cabin that, in, cabin that discretion in where appropriate. Ten years ago, I did not think of, of, of the United States as having this sort of level of fragility. Now, I, I'm almost reluctant to use the word fragility. I'm trying to find the right word because, as I say, at the same time, there is tremendous strength in our institutions and not just the institutions, but, um, you know, the media, civil society, 
uh, and the like. Look, I, you can hear it in my voice, I think. I mean, I'm still taken aback by what happened yesterday. It's a real day of reckoning for the country. And the reckoning is going to go on over a long time now. It's going to take a long time to sort through this. How much damage do you think has been done? I think the damage that's been done internationally is significant. We have been viewed as the most stable democracy in the world, maybe along with the UK, but I think probably even more than the UK. So much of our success depends on, on, on the sense of the stability of the United States, that we are not prone or have not been prone uh, to some of the things that have, have plagued some other democracies. I've always taken great pride in the fact, for example, that we are uh, the only country, as, I, as far as I know, that has had elections, regularly scheduled elections, no matter what else was going on at the time, no matter whether we were in a civil war, whether we were in a world war, Great Depression. There's some incredible solidity about the United States. I, I think that image has been shaken in, in a lot of places around the world, not just because of one moment and what happened yesterday, that's the most dramatic culmination of it, but to see people take over the seat of government in the United States in the way that happened yesterday uh, is, is, I'm sh sure, shocking uh, around the world. And how that's going to affect the United States, international relations and the like going forward, uh, I don't know. But I think those ramifications are going to be significant. And it's going to take us a long time to reestablish the kind of credibility and confidence in the United States and our system that, uh, that, that for so many decades people around the world have had. After the Civil War, we changed the Constitution. After Watergate, we made a whole bunch of reforms in some of the areas that you work in. What, what, what should we be doing post-Trump? Well, that's a big question. We're certainly going to consider legislation to try to cabin in the presidency in certain ways. You know, we have to be careful about that because... Um, there are reasons for presidents do need discretion. And some people think some of the Watergate reforms went too far. Uh, you know, we, we had the independent counsel system that was created in Watergate. Both sides, both parties, uh, when that law sunsetted later on, uh, agreed that the law had been a mistake and they let it lapse. So it's a very delicate matter to strike the right balance in trying to legislate with respect to the presidency. You know, certainly there are matters like um, requiring financial transparency from presidential candidates uh, and presidents, tax returns, for example. I can imagine Congress is going to legislate on that. There are issues about Congress and, and why has Congress become so dysfunctional, which opens up the door uh, for greater presidential initiative, let's say. Congress has delegated too much power to the president. Um, is Congress going to be able to, you know, claim back some of that power? That's a big question. You know, of course, with our election system, you know, we have to figure out how to shore up some points of vulnerability in the system and try to provide confidence uh, about the integrity of the system. There are a lot of different fronts on which um, uh, we're going to have to uh, confront these issues. And at the same time, of course, we're still going to be dealing with the pandemic. We still have uh, uh, the economy, uh, which, um, of course, is tied to the pandemic. There's a big agenda ahead, but um, I do think we will see some set of reforms like the post-Watergate reforms that will come out of this Congress. Uh, but 
it's hard to even say that should take front seat given the pandemic and the economy, which is sort of an unfortunate thing. There's a very good book by, by two people I respect called After Trump with a series of suggestions, very concrete suggestions about legislation Congress should enact uh, to uh, control the presidency more effectively and to restore more of a role for Congress. That, that book is written by Jack Goldsmith, uh, a Republican who is a law professor at Harvard Law School, and, and the person I mentioned earlier, uh, Bob Bauer, who's a Democrat. Uh, ironically, I don't know if that's the right word, Bob and I are about to start teaching a course uh, in mid-January at NYU Law School uh, on the presidency and legal issues concerning the presidency, uh, which will, of course, deal with these issues, both about understanding the history of how it's evolved and uh, what sorts of changes might be appropriate going forward. One of the things that's changed, well, it's only partially Trump-related, is is the composition of the court is so different than when you were first clerking there or practicing there. Do you think that it makes any sense to think about reforms to the Supreme Court that have been thrown around, adding members or putting term limits or anything else? Well, I think what I would say about that is that um, President-elect Biden committed to putting together a uh, presidential commission uh, to look into those questions. That will be an important focal point uh, for discussions about um, whether there are changes uh, that might be desirable for the Supreme Court. I mean, it's certainly not good for the country that so much of our political intensity has gotten concentrated on Supreme Court appointments and that the, the those become such major political battles and confrontations. You know, that's not good for the court. It's understandable why we're there. Uh, uh, people uh, serve for so long now. Uh, the court uh, deals with such a huge range of consequential issues. And especially with Congress or the political process being more paralyzed, uh, that means that means what the court does is even more consequential. So it's understandable that the controversies are where they are in some sense. It's such a fever pitch. But as I say, it's not good for the court. It's not good for the country. Uh, whether there are particular reforms that can make a significant difference on that, uh, you know, there are a lot of ideas that have been kicked around uh, by academics. But it will be very interesting to see if, in fact, this presidential commission does get formed uh, what direction it goes. Yeah. There's already, um, calls like in the Georgia legislature, for example, to push backwards against some of the things that came out to make it easier to vote, to make it easier to vote by mail, et cetera. I was pretty happy, you know, especially in a pandemic, but more generally that voting became easier recently and turnout went up. Do you think that we're going to face a round of retrenchment on that? and Let me start off with the, the point about turnout going up. So one of the things that we're going to actually need some good empirical work to kind of make sense of um, is how much of that increase in turnout was driven by making voting more accessible, which was not just uh, absentee voting, but, but expanded early in-person voting, versus how much of that was just the incredibly intense mobilization of voters on both sides, given what people perceive to be at stake in, in this election. You know, that'll take 
some time for the social scientists to to kind of try to 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 work through. So we don't I don't really know the answer to to that. I say that because some of the earlier empirical work about uh, making voting more convenient was ambiguous about whether it it those changes did or didn't have an, an effect on turnout. We made a lot of changes because of the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, which of those changes um, should become permanent parts of our, our system? Or that's certainly a matter that's going to be debated and discussed going forward. I mean, the thing I would point out is that th- there are two different ways of making voting more convenient. One is expanded absentee voting. The other is expanded early voting. And um, early voting is in-person voting. We could certainly have more of both. But there are advantages and disadvantages to to each of those ways of of expanding um, kind of access. One of the good things about early in-person voting is we know that there are inevitable um, issues and fights about absentee voting. That's just a it's a different process. You know, people have to they have to make deadlines. They have to uh, uh, fill out ballots and ballot envelopes in various ways to ensure the integrity of the process that opens up fights. I think we are going to see some significant long-term changes as a result of this election. I don't really know which direction they're more likely to go, whether it will be more expanded early in-person voting, whether it will be expanded no-excuse absentee voting in states that didn't have it before this election but adopted it for this election. Let me just, I don't know, make two points, if I can, since you got me going on this subject. Two large points about the way the U.S. election system works. One is we don't have professional election administration like many countries do. We rely a lot on volunteers, as you know, poll workers uh, and the like. Um, And then in addition, we have a lot of partisan elected officials who oversee the process. Now, many of them perform quite admirably in this election, But most democracies have sort of independent election bodies that oversee the election process. They don't rely on partisan elected officials for that. That, I think, is an issue that that needs a lot more discussion in the United States. The other thing is that we have tremendous decentralization uh, of our elections, even for the presidency. Uh, And again, that's an unusual system uh, compared to other democracies. There's something good about that, uh, which partly means it's harder to capture control of the system um, as it would be if it were completely centralized. But on the other hand, with greater decentralization, you have all these policy decisions that are made, you know, way down in the system. It makes them less transparent. Uh, it makes them less prone to sort of back and forth and, and, and policy judgment, you know, in the way we would have if this were done at the national level or even at the state level. Different counties do things differently. That's not always a good thing. It's good to have some consistency across the state. So decentralization and partisan election administration have always been two issues I've been concerned about in the United States. And we'll see if there's some attention to both of those issues going forward. One of the things I did recently was listen to Trump's call to Georgia Secretary of State. I assume you're you may have also. I've listened to that call, yes. I mean, he's kind of a piece of work in the bullying and the marshalling of false information. How do we tackle having this kind of rogue presidency in the relationship between the president and the, the democracy? I really lamely asked that question, but it, it you know. Well, and these are such big questions. Um, and, and, you know, in, in some sense, it's, it's hard to 
to know where to start. I just listened to that call and thought, you know, is this illegal? He is kind of a master of of saying things in ways that he can wriggle out of. Even yesterday, you know, calling on everyone to be peaceful and I'm sending them over there. But it's such a huge question to have consequences for this kind of behavior. When the president calls up local election officials, I mean, secretaries of state and the like, there's always just implicit pressure from the very beginning because it's the president calling. Um, And these are partisan elected officials. They understand the power of the president in the uh, Republican Party electorate. That's always, you know, kind of there from the very beginning. Now, I'm not aware of other presidents ever making any calls even close to resembling the call that we heard uh, from Georgia. You know, on, on top of that, I mean, the president is, is, is in charge of law enforcement in the United States. And when you have the president suggesting you may be committing crimes by not doing what he wants, if he were calling in the middle of his term, um, that would be a very serious matter to have hanging over your head if you were receiving that phone call. If the president had a basis for raising questions, I mean, first of all, there are, there are a whole lot of other routes for raising those questions, including the courts, of course. And you have other people call who are not implicitly you know, carrying the threat that comes from the, the, the leverage and the power that the president has. That's why, for example, when the president communicates with the Justice Department, it's often through the White House counsel, a lawyer. Because there was not a serious, credible, factual basis for those charges, as the Georgia election officials went through them one by one uh, a day or two later, that's what makes it so inappropriate on top of everything else. The president may be very well convinced himself uh, that that these things happened. You know, at some point, we have to look at the, the facts. And the facts are that we had this election looked at in more detail in the courts than any election we've had since Bush v. Gore, but much more than Bush v. Gore because we had 60-some cases across many states. The campaign of the president was given every opportunity, although Sometimes they were thrown out of court because they waited way too long to to raise certain issues. Uh, But they had opportunities to make their claims, to provide evidence about fraud and the like. They weren't able to do that. And and at some point, um, whether the president is convinced of this or not, um, other actors have to say, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Um, This did not happen. That was an inappropriate phone call because there was no real factual basis uh, among many other reasons, it was an inappropriate call. You know, there's so much to be said here, and uh, we're so deep in the conversation, I don't think uh, I can open up that whole box right now. Fair enough. It just strikes me that you've found yourself or put yourself or work yourself into an amazing place, you know, where you get to, you know, think about these sort of really important issues, theoretically participate in them in the real world and, and all that, and be, you know, one of the go-to people in this ecosystem. How do you feel at this point? Where do you want to go from here? (laughs) Look, I, I don't want to be in a position of having to deal with, think about, try to reform the system to avoid 
presidents trying to manipulate the election process for partisan and self-interested reasons. I don't want to be doing that. You know, stepping back from the immediate kind of moment, um, you know, I, I think these issues are, are as important as any um, in a country, in any democracy. Uh, I love working on them. You know, we obviously have a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, you know, perfecting democracy is a never-ending process in any event, even even apart from what we were exposed to um, yesterday um, and in that phone call. I don't know where the future will take me. I do intend to continue to work on these issues. What's happening in democracies across the, the Western world right now is is a moment that is not just about the United States. It's It's about democracies in the West in general. And they are facing challenges they really haven't faced since World War II. There's a lot of anger, disappointment, uh, frustration among people who feel left behind for one reason or another. Uh, The political systems haven't managed to deal with that effectively yet. It's not entirely clear exactly what they can do. So these democracies are facing challenges that uh, I wouldn't have predicted 25 years ago, certainly. In fact, I wrote a piece in the early 2000s that said this is the age of democracy. I think that was the first line of the piece in 2004 or something like that. And that was because we were at a moment where with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, with the uh, democratization of South Africa, for example, we had had more democracies, new democracies created in the previous decade than I think in any other decade. Uh, In history, the number of democracies, something like doubled uh, over 15 years. Um, And it seemed like um, democracy, you know, even in Iraq, uh, post uh, the Iraq war, there was the the effort to create a democratic system in Iraq. There was a sense that democracy was the appropriate form of government for almost any country coming out of almost any circumstance, civil war, massive social conflict. Uh, It was a moment of great optimism. That started to change within just a few years. And so I would never have thought back in 2004, democracies would be facing the kind of challenges that they have been facing over the last 10 or 15 years, but particularly the last uh, most recent years. So um, there's certainly a lot to think about, a lot to work on, um, hopefully a lot to write about. Um, I do feel gratitude that I'm engaged with these issues um, this is what I want to be working on and thinking about. And of course, it's a gift to uh, be able to do what you what you want to do with your life. It's really an honor to talk to you. Is there a question I didn't ask that you'd like to answer? Well, I, I, I have a question for you, which is, this must be a fantastic experience for you. Uh, I'm envious of, of you a teeny bit uh, to be able to do these kinds of podcasts. I don't know the full range of people that you do them with how much they're confined to politics or how much they deal with other realms. But uh, I've often thought that if I weren't doing what I'm doing, uh, I would love to be in a position one form or another where I can call up people I'd want to talk to and spend an hour with them, whether they're in science, arts, law, music, whatever it might be. seems to me like you found a pretty good way to spend your time as well. I've been doing three of these a week for three and a half years. So I don't know, 560 of them or something. I'm sort of astonished by some of the people who will let me talk to them and, you know, honored by it. I'm sometimes I'm incredibly inspired by the work that someone's doing 
on the ground level in a particular state to register voters or the company that they built to add something to the democratic process or you know someone who's written a, an amazing book on the presidency or it's really like having lunch a couple times a week with amazing people what do you know about the audience for these podcasts how large they are it's my audience is modest because it's pretty long form and i'm not terribly well known <laughs> to say the least i know that it's getting listened to by some people that i i'm glad are listening to it one thing i've never done is worried about the audience i've just tried to worry about learning from the person and sharing that conversation with whoever is willing to listen to it. One of the things about podcasts is pretty hard to know who listens to you. I've just sort of use it to, to talk to the people who I want to about the things that I want to hear about. Well, what a great life. That sounds great to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad. That was Professor Richard Pildes. He is at NYU Law. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.